Good morning, River Oaks. Good morning. I see you have your tea in you, Jill. That's good. And good morning, everyone uh, who who is sitting around their living rooms with their families. Uh, I just want to greet you. My name is Mitchell Slater. I'm one of the elders here at River Oaks, and I'm so happy that you're you're uh, watching and worshiping with us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father of grace. We thank you that we can come to you through the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word, Father. We thank you that it is finer than the richest of gold. Help our hearts to treasure it. We thank you that it is sweeter than honey. Help our souls to taste and see that you are good. Lord Jesus, our Savior, we we thank you that you have given us your precious blood so that we can stand before God blameless and with great joy. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for your fellowship among us that even while we're separated can be tangible and palpable and evident. We pray that you would lift up Jesus and exalt him. We pray that you would encourage our hearts and impress your words upon us. Pray that you would redeem those who don't yet know you and that you would build your church. It's not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory for your steadfast love and faithfulness. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue in our study of Ephesians. So our text for this morning is Ephesians 4, which is 25 through 27. Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbors, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Two weeks ago, when we were last in Ephesians, Patrick, he introduced us to a new theme that Paul is bringing out in this letter. It's the theme of putting off and putting on. So back, especially in verses 22, 23, and 24, Paul is telling us to put off the old self and to put on the new self, to get rid of our old way of life and to pursue a new way of life. Let's go back and read that just as a reminder. Let's start at verse 21 of chapter 4. Assuming that you have heard about him, Jesus, and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the picture here, like Patrick was showing us a few weeks ago, is that of changing clothes. So taking off 
an old pair of clothes, putting on a new pair of clothes. And normally, the act of changing clothes isn't anything significant, just a normal day-to-day task that we all do. But there are a few situations where the act of changing clothes becomes actually rather significant. I want to think through a few of those with us just to open up. One is, if you meet someone who has spent a significant amount of time in prison and they tell you the story about the day of their release, it's very interesting that there's always, or almost always, a similar detail that they share. They almost always talk about the feeling of taking off that prison uniform and getting to put back on their normal clothes. I say it's a great feeling. It's a feeling of freedom. Those old clothes, they represented their incarceration. And now they, they literally feel free. But while it's a great feeling, there can also be a sense of discomfort. They have worn those the, the same clothes for so many years that now the feeling of regular clothes, maybe the feeling of, of denim on their legs feels uncomfortable. It can take a little while to get used to that feeling again. And this is exactly how it can be with us as Christians. If we're in Christ, we have been set free. Our old prison garments of self have been taken away And this is a great feeling. We are free in Him. But that new way of life can feel a bit uncomfortable at first. It can take a little while to get used to the new life that Jesus has given us. An important point to make is this. The released prisoner, he can't can't put on those new clothes until he has been set free. Those clothes have to be given to him. And in the same way, you cannot begin to put on the new self until Jesus sets you free. You can't try to live in a new way of life, a life of freedom, until Jesus gives that to you. So if you're listening and you're not a Christian and you don't know Jesus... I want you to know that you will not be able to experience the truths of this passage, that the rest of this sermon, you won't be able to live according to it if you have not been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You cannot begin to live as a new person if Jesus hasn't already made you new. And this is exactly what last weekend was all about. On Good Friday, When Jesus died, your old self died with him. And on Easter, on Resurrection Sunday, when Jesus rose from the dead, your new life rose with him. Your old life, your old self has been crucified with Christ. It has been nailed to the cross. And he has raised you up in him to walk in the newness of life. That is the good news. And this theme of of the new self and the old self, it really goes all the way back into Genesis. In the beginning, God made Adam in his own image. And God told him to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth 
with his image bearers to reflect his glory throughout the whole world. When Adam sinned, that image, although it wasn't lost, it became marred and broken and distorted. We don't reflect God the way that we should. So Jesus, the final Adam, the one who is the image of the invisible God, he has come to restore that image in us, to recreate his people as a new humanity that he is filling the earth with to reflect his glory throughout the world. That is what Jesus is doing. That's exactly what a similar passage, very similar, in, a, in Colossians chapter 3 says. It says that he is restoring us into the image of our creator. We're putting on the likeness of God. So before you can begin to reflect this image, Jesus must restore that image within you. Right now, if you don't know Jesus, I want you I want to invite you to come to him. Earlier in Ephesians, in chapter 2, Paul said that, that this salvation, it is by grace through faith, and it is a gift to be received, not a reward to be earned. No matter how hard you try to start living a new life, no matter how much you try in your own effort to live in the way that Paul's going to call you to live, you cannot begin to live in that new life until Jesus gives you new life. So come to him. If you ask him, he will make you a new creation. He'll give you a new self and a new identity. He can transform you into a new person with a new way of life. And if you are a Christian, let that be a reminder to you and an encouragement that everything that Paul is going to tell us, everything that he's going to exhort us in is based on that reality, on that new identity that we've been given in Christ, who's remaking us into the image of God. One more situation where a change of clothes is important is with those in the military, in the armed services. When they take off their civilian clothes and put on their uniform, they are showing that they are separate from the rest of the population. They're different. They've been called to a specific duty. And Paul is calling us in the rest of chapter 4 to put on the Christian uniform. Not an actual piece of clothing, but our character. Our way of life. He's already said we are not to walk as the Gentiles walk. We are to live differently than the world around us. We are to put on the uniform of duty to King Jesus. And it's here that Paul gets very practical. I love how Paul can just go from such high theology to such practical application at the flip of a coin. So let your eyes glance over the rest of chapter 4, starting at verse 25, because I want to show you where we're going to be going in the following weeks. Paul, he gives us six examples to show us exactly what it looks like to put off the old and to put on the new. We'll just be looking at the first two of these this morning. He tells us to put off falsehood and to put on truthfulness. He tells us to put off sinful anger and to put on righteous anger. He tells us to put off stealing and to put on hard work and generosity. To put off corrupting talk and to put on gracious speech. 
to put off grieving the Holy Spirit and to put on bearing the Spirit's fruit. And finally, to put off bitterness and to put on forgiveness. So that's where we're going to be going in the next few weeks. Paul, again, gets very practical at what does this actually look like to put off the old self and put on the new. So this morning, let's look at the first two in verses 25 through 27. And I think we can summarize the passage like this. Our new identity in Christ leads us to put off falsehood and sinful anger and to put on truthfulness and righteous anger. Our new identity in Christ leads us to put off falsehood and sinful anger and to put on truthfulness and righteous anger. So first, let's look at putting off falsehood and putting on truthfulness. Let's read verse 25 again. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Paul wants us to put away falsehood. The word, the word falsehood, it simply means to lie. The New Living Translation, it puts this verse quite directly. It just says, so stop telling lies. So we are to put on truthfulness, to be remade in the likeness of our maker. That's what the Spirit is doing. He, he's working in us to make us more like God, and our God is a God of truth. Lying lips are an abomination to Him. He is the God who never lies. and Indeed, he, it is impossible for Him to lie. In contrast, lying and falsehood are what defined our former ways of life. We exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship the creation rather than the Creator. We honored Him with our lips while our hearts were far from Him. This is the old way of life, the old identity that we're to put off. This is also a defining mark of the culture we live in. We live in a culture of dishonesty, a culture where the term fake news erodes our collective trust, a culture where we have to be on guard from scammers even during a national emergency. In the midst of this type of culture, the same culture that the Ephesians lived in, Paul calls the church to be a beautiful counterculture. But it seems almost too simple. I mean, how hard is this? Paul's just telling us, stop telling lies. Start telling the truth. How much more could there be to this verse? <laughs> Turns out, a lot. Paul is not simply pulling a command out of thin air. He's actually referring back to Moses' words in the book of Leviticus. So, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. Let's read verses 11 through 18. <laughs> you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, the exact same thing that Paul says. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. 
You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, <coughs> but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance bear, or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In this passage, Moses is showing what it means to live together in the covenant community. The exact same thing Paul is doing in Ephesians 4. And Moses sums up his message in verse 18 in what we all recognize as the second greatest command to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the foundation for everything he says. But what does it look like to love your neighbor, particularly when it comes to speech and with truthfulness? Again, practically, it means not to lie, not to intentionally deceive one another, to avoid all dishonesty, to keep our word, to let our yes be yes and our no be no. Christians should be known for their integrity and their trustworthiness. But it also has some very specific applications. I want to look at a few of those. One is gossip. We're to put off gossip. If you notice in verse 16, it talks about going around and slandering your people. And what gossip does is it changes speaking the truth about your, or speaking the truth to your neighbor to speaking the truth about your neighbor behind their backs and often speaking falsehood about your neighbor. When we gossip, we, we drain the trust out of our relationship and create an atmosphere of distrust and disunity. Proverbs 16.28 says, A dishonest person stirs up conflict, and a gossip separates close friends. The other side of that coin is flattery. Flattery. While gossip may speak the truth behind someone's back, flattery speaks falsehood to someone's face. When we use flattery, we twist the truth to use other people to get what we want. Again, from Proverbs 29.5, it says, A person who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for him to fall into. Flattery is foolishness. And verse 15, it kind of brings these two together there in Leviticus 19. It speaks of how we tend to treat the poor and the great. To those below us, we tend to gossip and slander. To those who we feel are above us, we tend to flatter and suck up to them. Both are falsehood. And these can be what Jerry Bridges called respectable sins. They're not like the biggies. They're not like murder or theft or adultery. These are sins that can tend to be acceptable in society, even acceptable in the church if we're not careful. But Paul and Moses tell us that they are falsehood and they are to be put off. So if that's what we were to put off, what are we to put on? I want to look at two more things. First of all, encouragement. 
I think that we often view these passages about speaking the truth simply in terms of rebuke, simply in, in the negative. And, and that's, that's part of it. We'll get there in a moment. But it's easy for us to skip over the significance of encouragement. When you read about Barnabas in the Scriptures, do you remember that that's not actually his name? His name is actually Joseph. He's given that, that title, which means son of encouragement. So he must have been extremely encouraging to, fellow, to his fellow Christians. If the apostles gave a nickname based on how encouraging someone was, I think that shows us it, it's important and we should, we should perk up and listen. So when you see someone act in obedience, tell them the truth about it. When you see the fruit of the Spirit being born in someone's life, speak words of encouragement to them. When you see God active in someone's life, Him using them, praise God for that and praise Him so they can hear it. A common excuse for not speaking words of encouragement is that we don't want to, to puff someone up in pride. We don't want to, to you know, cause them to think more highly of themselves than they ought to. But my friends, if you're ever tempted to think that, just know that the pride that you're worried about is probably closer to home than you think. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, I don't think he was worried about puffing them up when he said this in, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19-20. He said, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. What an encouragement it would have been to those young, suffering believers. May we learn to speak life-giving words of truth to one another. But again, there is another side of the coin. This passage does speak about rebuke. Read verse 17 again. It says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, or literally, you shall rebuke your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Sometimes we do need to speak a hard word of truth with our neighbor, truth that might be difficult for them to hear. There will be times where we need to correct and rebuke and exhort. But this, to me, it doesn't sound like a once-in-a-blue-moon confrontation. It sounds like a, a mutual, frequent, day-by-day ministry to one another. Correction should just be the normal way of life in the body. I don't know about you, but I want to be told when I need to check my beliefs or my, my ways of thinking or my actions. When we see our fellow Christians in, in sin or in error, it's easy to be silent. It's easy to take the path of least resistance. I can feel that. But verse 17 says, if we don't rebuke our neighbor when we see that, we hate them. True love pursues even at relational risk to ourselves. So these, these two types of truth-telling, both encouragement and rebuke, they go hand in hand. So I want to talk about an idea that I like to call relational capital. Relational capital. So I want you to think about some of your relationships and think about them as a bank account. 
Sometimes you make deposits, and other times you make withdrawals. Each time you encourage your brother or sister in Christ, you are making a deposit into that relationship. And every time you rebuke your brother or sister, you're making a withdrawal. And so we need to make sure that we have plenty stored up in that relationship so that when it comes time to to make that correction or that rebuke, the account doesn't go into the negative. A good rule of thumb for every one rebuke there should be 10 encouragements. For every one rebuke, there should be 10 encouragements. This is the robust biblical view of truth-telling. And it's all based on love for neighbor. That's the foundation for this whole thing. This is what love in community looks like. If we turn back to Ephesians, we can do that now. Go ahead and turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. This is what Paul bases his exhortation on. He says that we are members one of another. That's why we should live this way. We belong to each other. We are to put on truthfulness because in Christ we have been made one body. But this doesn't always go as smoothly as we'd like. Sometimes our relational bank accounts do go into the negative. Feelings get hurt. Relationships get damaged and people can get angry. And I think that's why Paul moves on to this next point. Let's read verse 26 and 27, where Paul encourages us to put off sinful anger and put on righteous anger. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. We are all in some way prone to get angry. Some of us more than others, but all of us in some way struggle with anger. During this time of quarantine, our schedules have changed. We're spending way more time with certain people. And so we might feel a bit cooped up. Tensions might be high. And we might be feeling the friction of spending all day with our families. And without work and school and hobbies, our anger may have found less places to hide. So if that sounds like you, if you're experiencing that, you're not alone. And Paul is here to tell you how to deal with it, how to put that off, and then what we need to put on. He's given us an apostolic anger management lesson. His main point to us, anger is often sinful, so get rid of it quickly. Not always, but anger is often sinful, so get rid of it quickly. He tells us not to let the sun go down on our anger. And a good principle to live by is never go to bed angry. Never go to bed angry. And this applies to everyone, but just for a moment, I want to speak to married couples. Because to those of you who are married, this is something that we especially need to hear. Shannon and I, we have not always lived it out. There have been many nights where we have had to stay up late to resolve a conflict. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do everything you can to avoid going to bed angry. 
But this does apply to everyone. You might not be able to resolve a conflict before going to bed, but the point is, get it done as soon as possible. If you're harboring anger in your heart, spend time with the Lord. Ask Him to help you to let that anger go. And right now, if there's anger that you have let the sun set on night after night, put it off. By the Spirit's help, get rid of it. Don't let it fester and spread. God, in His grace, has put a time limit on our anger. And it's for our good. When you see the sun begin to set, know it's time to deal with your anger. And anger, like like all sins, grows worse and worse the longer it's left undealt with. I think that's why Paul eventually gets down to verse 31 of chapter 4, where he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. That's what it will eventually go to if it's left undealt with. If you let your anger consume you, it will ultimately destroy you. It has destroyed individuals and relationships, marriages and families, churches and ministries, communities and nations. Think of the classic feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. That, that bitter grudge led to multiple deaths over multiple decades, all because many people believe over the supposed theft of a pig. They let the sun set on their anger night after night after night after night, and it destroyed them. And this destruction is exactly what the devil wants. Read verse 27 again. It says, give no opportunity to the devil. When sinful anger is neglected, Satan is given an opportunity. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. We already sang, and that is true. The word opportunity there, and a lot of other translations, they put it as a foothold. Don't give Satan a foothold into your life. It can also be translated as a dwelling or a dwelling place. So he's warning us. Paul is warning us not to let Satan set up his dwelling in our dwelling place. Don't let anger prepare him a guest room in your home. He's saying when you go to bed angry, you are going to bed with the door wide open. And all of this devil talk might sound like I'm just trying to scare you, but this is just what Paul is saying. This is a real biblical warning about a real danger, and we need to take it seriously. Satan would like nothing more than to wreak havoc out of our unchecked anger. He would like nothing more than to see our families implode or our churches disintegrate. And we must not give him that opportunity. We must put off anger quickly. The Puritan Thomas Manton, he gives a a vivid illustration for this. He's talking about sin in general, but it especially applies here. He said, It is easier to crush the egg than to kill the serpent. It is prudent to break up all the eggs we can find before the reptiles are hatched. Just so far greater wisdom will be shown in early dealing with temptation than in allowing it time to make headway. It is best to correct ourselves early and to stamp out the first sparks 
of evil desire before passion rises to a flame. A child can crush a serpent's egg, but who will contend with the venomous creature once it's hatched if it's left unbroken? Beloved, we must crush the egg of anger before it becomes the viper of bitterness and malice. We must put out those initial sparks before it turns into a great fire. So what's the flip side to this? What do we need to put on? The answer is right there in the first two words of verse 26. Paul says, be angry. We are to put on righteous anger. He says, be angry and do not sin. And this is, this is not the natural way that I would think about this. Later on, in verse 31 and 32, that makes sense to me. Paul says, put off bitterness and malice and anger and put on forgiveness. Forgive one another as God has forgiven you. Okay, that makes sense. But put off sinful anger and then put on righteous anger? Does Paul really mean it when he tells us to be angry? And the answer is yes. That's exactly what Paul means. No matter how much we might want to get around it, God is calling us to be angry. And he's calling us to be angry without sin. Remember, we are being restored into the image of God, a God who is a God of righteousness and a God of justice, and yes, a God of wrath. Psalm 7 says that God is a righteous judge who is angry every day. That is our God. And we are called to reflect Him in all of His attributes, not just the ones that we find comfortable. So I think J.I. Packer's description of God's wrath is extremely helpful here. He says, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ennoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. It is God's right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. And while our anger is so often sinful, so too is our apathy. There are things that we should get angry about. When we see evil and injustice, that should have an effect on us. The psalmist in Psalm 119, 53, he said this, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Can we pray that? Can we say that? When we see 60 million children sacrificed on the altar of convenience, or when we see our brothers and sisters beheaded by terrorists, or when we see 40 million women and children enslaved in human trafficking, hot indignation should seize us. We are to be angry and not sin. But what does this actually look like? We could see it going wrong. We could see talking about righteous anger to be you know, a dangerous thing. Isn't it better just to play it safe and just avoid all anger, period? There are some theologians that think so. Many, actually. And they say, while they believe righteous anger, it's a real category. We probably shouldn't pursue it. It's just unrealistic and unattainable. We should just avoid such things. But I think Jesus, and throughout the Word, has something different to say to us 
And I think he sets a pretty good example. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. So I want you to see this. And I want us to ask the classic question, what would Jesus do? We're going to be in Mark 3, starting at verse 1. And this is on the Sabbath day. Jesus is about to heal a man. And look at exactly how Jesus responds here. So Mark 3, verse 1. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, that is the Pharisees, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And notice this. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Notice verse 5. It says, Jesus became angry. But there are two factors here that help us so much to understand what righteous anger actually looks like. First, Jesus was angry, but he was also grieved. It said that he became angry and he was grieved over what they had done. His anger was mixed with grief. His indignation was mixed with sorrow. And divine grief has always accompanied God's wrath. Even in Genesis 6, before the great judgment of the flood, it says that the sin of mankind had grieved God to his heart. If our righteous anger isn't filled with holy sorrow, we're doing it wrong. Psalm 119, the same psalm, it speaks not just of hot indignation, but it also speaks of flowing tears. In verse 136, he says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. The picture of righteous anger should be tears on our cheeks not smoke out of our ears. But there's another aspect of anger that Jesus displays for us. Remember, the Pharisees were watching him, plotting to catch him, trying to find a way that they could destroy him. But, but Jesus, in his anger, notice how he responds. He doesn't use violence against them. He doesn't even really say anything to them. What does he do? He just heals the man. He just heals him. He does what he was already planning to do, and he performs the miracle to restore this man's life. This is so important. Anger, the right kind of anger, should lead us to do good. Righteous anger should lead us to do what is right. And if you think, well, that's Jesus, you know, can we really have the same kind of reaction as Jesus? Well, let's think about Paul. He was a human just like us. And Paul in Acts 17, 
when he walks into Athens and he sees their rampant idolatry, it says that Paul became angry. But what does he do with that anger? He doesn't go and smash their idols. He doesn't go and set fire to their temples. No, Paul stands up and preaches the gospel. Paul goes right in the middle of them and proclaims Christ Jesus. Righteous anger should lead us to righteous living. Holy anger will lead us to greater holiness. Godly anger produces godliness. For instance, sinful anger sees the horror of abortion and goes and sets an abortion clinic on fire. Righteous anger sees abortion and goes and sets up an emergency pregnancy center to help women and to actually save lives. And ultimately, righteous anger leads us to be angry with our own sin. It doesn't lead us to self-condemnation. It doesn't lead us to self-pity, but it does lead us to put our sin to death. We should be angry about the speck in our own eye, not the log in our neighbor's. Righteous anger produces righteousness. And a clear way to know if our anger is actually righteous is looking at the results. Did it lead you to obedience? Did it lead you to acts of love? Did it lead you to honor Christ? It's also significant that in both of those verses from Psalm 119, the psalmist was angry over the breaking of God's law. Whenever you get angry, you should ask yourself, am I mad because God's law has been broken or because my personal law has been broken? Am I upset because someone has disrespected God's name or because they've disrespected my name? Am I angry out of a concern for God's kingdom or out of a concern for my own little kingdom of self? And we have to be careful because we can try to deceive ourselves on this very point and, and justify our sinful anger. We might get angry at a disrespectful child and use the fifth commandment to justify ourselves. Well, well, they're supposed to honor their father and their mother. That's God's law, so my anger at them is okay. Is it? Is that your true concern? Was God's law really the first thing on your mind, or were you just mad because they sassed you? You have to be honest. Here's another situation. You might get angry at a lazy coworker and use the Bible verses about hard work to ease your conscience. But deep down, you know it isn't true. What were the results? Did that anger lead you to pray for them? Did it lead you to set an example for them? Did it lead you to, to offer to come alongside them and to help them? Or did it cause you to grumble and to complain, or maybe even to gossip about them. Righteous anger produces righteousness. So if the fruit is rotten, so is the root. But even when it can seem difficult to separate anger and sin, Paul's exhortation is still true, and it still is standing right here in our face. You must put off that old sinful anger, but don't stop there. Put on the new way of life namely, holy 
Christ-like anger. We are called to be individuals, and we are called to be a church that reflects both God's truth and God's justice, His honesty and His anger. And remember, this happens through the renewing of our minds. Verse 23 says, And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. So as we end, I want to look at how to renew our minds, how to do this. And I want to look at it from 2 Corinthians 3.18. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We want to be transformed into God's image. We want to go on from one degree of glory to another. We want to change and mature, to put off and to put on. So how do we do it? Paul here says that we must learn to behold. Thank you, Keith, for your song selections, brother. You led us so well in this, to behold the glory of God. If we want to be conformed more and more into God's image, we must learn to gaze at His glory as revealed in Scripture. If we want to live more like Jesus, we must turn the eyes of our hearts upon Him and look full in His wonderful face. We are being changed into His likeness, into His image, so we must look to Him alone. The only heart that can truly change is a heart that has been utterly captivated by the beauty of God in Christ. So to you who long to put off falsehood and sinful anger, and to you who long to put on truthfulness and righteous anger, I have one thing to say to you. Behold your God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your son and the gift of your Holy Spirit among us. Help us to behold your glory. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Beholding the beauty of the Lord and meditating in your temple. Help that to be true of us. Help us to gaze upon your beauty, to behold your glory in our hearts as you meet us in your word and in spirit. And I pray that you would transform everyone listening to this message. You would transform me more and more into the image of your beloved son. And to him be all the glory. Amen.